0: Will anybody else like me grow up and watch Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? Let me see a show of hands. If you watched Mr. Rogers, okay. Some of you did. Some of you were like, who's Mr. Rogers? You'll have to go watch like a documentary they did on him a few years ago, okay, with Tom Hanks. Uh, but I, I grew up watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I know that that dates me. You're probably like, how old are you? Didn't he like make shows in the 50s, okay? Um, I think he started like in the 60s, but but he he kept making shows hugely extremely, Extremely successful show for kids. And my mom said I was captivated. I talked to my mom this week and she said I was captivated by this show. I would sit in front of the TV, Indian style with my legs crossed. I'd have all my toys, you know, kind of around me. And I would watch Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. My mom said she would lay next to me, usually asleep. Okay? If you're a mom, I think you understand that, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm kind of locked into this show right now. Nothing else is distracting me, okay? And, and so she said she would often watch it with me, sometimes uh, asleep. And the song for Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood would come on and she said, I would sing it every time. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Yeah, come on. Some of you sing, it. it's a beautiful day. in. The... Won't you be my neighbor, right? And then he'd say, won't you please? And he'd throw his shoe, you know, and catch it with the other hand be my neighbor. Right. And so I I loved this show. I loved it. And I would, I would sing this song. I knew all the words of the song. In fact, as I was preparing this week, I went back and watched a a couple of the, uh, of Mr. Rogers episodes. It just took me right back. I could, I could sing the song. I remembered even some of the the episodes. It it was wild. I asked my mom, I said, "Would, would Travis, my younger brother, would, would he watch it with me? kind of expecting that he would have been right there with me watching the show. And she said, oh no, no, Travis couldn't stand Mr. Rogers. It was way too calm. It was way too calm for him. He was a much more active kid. He liked Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, okay? So that's, that's the kind of show he liked. Well, today, Jesus is going to talk about what it looks like to be a good neighbor. And in doing so, he's gonna answer with this story, with this parable of a good Samaritan He's going to answer four of the most important questions you could possibly ask or know the answers to in this life. The Good Samaritan's going to teach us and answer four good questions. We're in a series where we're going through the Gospel of Luke verse by verse. We actually started last fall, and so we're about 11 months into our study of the Gospel of Luke. Now, we've been throwing in some other talks and messages and series here and there, but we're working our way through the Gospel of Luke verse by verse. And that's how we study the scripture here at the City Church. That's how we preach here at the City Church is verse by verse through books the Bible, and we do that because we believe that develops a deeper faith, a deeper trust in God, a deeper love for God, a deeper commitment to the mission of God. Because let's just all face it, let's be real, right? Sometimes life is going to punch you right in the face. It's gonna sucker punch you in the gut, and sometimes you're not gonna feel like it, right? I'm sure some of you are here today and you don't really feel like maybe being here. You don't really feel like maybe singing the words of these songs. You don't really feel like even listening to me right now. You're just, you just don't feel it all the time. Sometimes life does that to you. And if I'm being real and honest with you, like that's where I've been this week. I I just haven't really been feeling it. And that's why when we study the scripture like this, because it's incumbent upon us, like Jesus said, to love the Lord our God, not only with all of our heart, soul, and strength, but with our minds. Because sometimes life is going to punch you in the face and the emotion's not gonna be there. You're not gonna feel like it. Your heart's not gonna really be in it. And in fact, we're probably gonna be asking some of those deep, troubling questions about the faithfulness of God and if God really is who he says he is and if he really loves me like he said he would. And it's in those moments that that if we've been loving the Lord our God with all of our mind and we know the word of God and we know the Lord our God because we know the full counsel of his word, that we'll be able to stand that test. Life may punch us, but we're not gonna be rocked. The wind and the waves may come, but we're gonna stand firm. Because we've got a deep faith that's been developed through a knowledge of God's word. And so we're challenging you to study with us. And and that's different, Hear, hear me, look at me, hear me. That's different than just being in here and listening to me right now. Just kind of sitting back in your chair and listening and watching like this is some event to watch. I'm challenging you to study with this, which means lean forward, engage, open up our app. Look at the message notes, like, like study the verses with us. Take notes, underline in your Bible, do do whatever you need to do to lean in and engage in our time. We're challenging you to study it with this, like to dive into the gospel of Luke, not just watch this like this is some sort of show. It's not. So, So study with us in the gospel of Luke, not just in here but we're gonna provide daily devotionals this week, Monday through Friday. They're gonna dive into these same verses on our app under the Bible study tab. We offer the Family Talk Bible study uh, resource, uh, again, under the Bible study tab on our app so that, so that families can get together and discuss the word of God together because our kids and our students are learning these exact same verses this morning in their classes. So we're inviting you, we're challenging you to study the gospel of Luke with us. And our hope has been that, that we'll get to know the real Jesus. Right, Not some social media ver, you know, version of Jesus, not Insta-Jesus, not meme Jesus. We're going to get to know the real Jesus. And as we do, I believe you're going to be drawn to him. You're going to be captivated by him. You're going to fall in love with Jesus as you get to know the real Jesus in the scripture. As you learn what the full counsel of the word of God has to say about Jesus You're gonna fall in love with him. And you too, like Paul said in Philippians chapter three, Paul said this, I compare, like I consider knowing Jesus so great that everything else is a loss compared to knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. And and I believe that can happen in you. That can happen in your heart as you study the gospel of Luke with us, that that like Paul, you'll begin to say, I count everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Knowing Jesus is better than anything else else. So open with me. Luke chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 25 through 37. This morning, Faith is going to come and read for us. So would you stand in honor of the word of the Lord? And we'll look at 25 through 37 this morning. Faith.
1: Hello, my name is Faith Trisong. I'm married to Moses Trisong. Um, I currently serve on the media team and we are part of the Hardin City Group. Um, I will be starting in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. One day, an expert in religious law stood up, stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with the story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man, who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same.
0: Thank you, Faith. You may be seated. So in verse 21, Brandon last week preached and and we saw where Jesus said the so-called wise or the so-called religious can actually lack true understanding. And now we're getting an illustration of this. Jesus is giving an illustration of this lack of understanding. In verse 25, it says this, one of these wise people, for thinking about the wording of verse 21, one of these wise religious people, this expert in the law, comes to Jesus, and look in verse 25, he asks the most basic of all religious questions, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's kind of the same question that the crowd asked Peter in Acts chapter two. Peter's preaching, and he says, you crucified the son of God. And and then he rose from the grave, proving that he's God, and, and the crowd's like, what do we do? We, we, we've sinned against God. We crucified the son of God. So they asked Peter, what must we do to be saved? That's a great question. What must we do to be saved? This religious lawyer, some translations say he's a lawyer, a lawyer in the law and the law of God. It says this, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This question revealing, as Jesus would say in verse 21, revealing his own ignorance. What must you do to inherit eternal life? Well, you don't, you don't do anything to inherit something, right? You inherit something because you're in the family. So so someone in your family has died and you're in the family and so you inherit what they have. Why? Because your name was written in the will as a family member. Well, the scripture says you inherit eternal life. If your name's written in the book of life, you're in the family of God. You receive all that is Jesus's. You receive a resurrection body just like he did and eternal life just like he has. So, so what must I do to inherit? That, that's an oxymoron. You don't do anything to inherit something. You just receive it by faith. So how are you saved? What, what must I do to inherit? What, what, what must we do to be saved? Well, We don't, we don't do anything. We're, we're saved. We inherit eternal life because of the sacrifice that dies in our place for our sin. Otherwise, how else could you know? How else could you know if you've ever done enough, right? That's not good news. The gospel is good news. Well, it's bad news to think I have to do better and try harder because how would I ever know if I've done enough and if I've tried hard enough to be pleasing, to be acceptable to God? That would be impossible to ever no, so this, this question reveals a, a lack of understanding and a lack of humility. This, this expert in religious law has totally missed it. You don't do anything to inherit eternal life because you could never do enough. Within the order of Pharisees, there are these handlers of the word of God that make sure, that would make sure Israel didn't fall into idolatry. They were called lawyers. These lawyers were experts in the law, and they would even counsel the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a ruling group of elders within Judaism who, who ruled on religious matters. And, and, and these lawyers that would, would counsel even the Sanhedrin. So, so this dude is like an expert in the Bible. He's an expert in the law of God. He's like a seminary professor, if you will. And he asked this question to test Jesus. He thought he could probably publicly embarrass Jesus and thus make a greater name for himself. The crowds had begun following Jesus and so quite possible this man is trying to put Jesus in his place and gain back some of their own adherents and and followers because they they begun to follow Jesus. And that was making the, the Pharisees very upset. And so most scholars would say this, this man is asking this question. It's not sincere. It's in order to trap Jesus. Well, verse 26, what does Jesus say? How does he respond to this expert in religious law? He says, what does the law say? How do you read it? it's interesting that he gives an expert in religious law, the law, that's what he offers this lawyer. What must you do to inherit eternal life? He starts with, Jesus starts with the law. We, we also see this in the parable of the rich young ruler, where this rich guy comes up and asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus gives him the law. Well, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery, you know, all this. And the guy says, I, I, I've done all these things. And he, he's, he's totally missing it. Jesus does the, the, the same thing here. What, what does the law say? He gives the law, he starts with the law to this expert in the law who wants to know what he can do in order to be saved. Jesus gives him the law. What does the law say? Well, in verse 27, this lawyer rightly quotes from Deuteronomy. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you're right. That's right. So do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. But here's what you got to understand about that word do in the original language. It means keep on doing. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. Yeah, you're right. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do that. Keep on doing that and keep on doing that and keep on doing that and you can inherit eternal life. That's the law. If, if you could do it, if you've always done it, and you can always do it, and you can keep on doing that for the rest of your life, then, then you would be as good as God. So if you could do that and keep on doing that, then you, can in, then you could receive eternal life. But what should the response be to that, right? Wait a second, you're, you're saying that, that I've got to perfectly love the Lord my God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength and love my neighbor as my, and I've got to keep on doing that? That's, that's not good news. Why? Because if that's the law and I've got to keep on doing it, what should his response have been? What, what, what would your response be? Well, wait, but, but I haven't done that. And I, I won't be able to do that. Like I can't, I can't keep the law of God. I could, I could try harder for the rest of my life and I won't be able to keep on doing that. that that's impossible. In the book of Exodus, we, we see God give his law to the nation of Israel through his prophet, his servant Moses. He gives the law. This is the standard of God. This is the glory of God. This is the holiness of God. And when you receive the standard and glory and holiness of God, what, what, it, what, what would your immediate response be? Well, I, I haven't done that and I can't do that. God's holy and I'm not. So that's not good. So, so what's the, the book that follows Exodus? You probably stopped reading it in your Bible reading plan because it got a little too detailed for you, right? What's, what's the book after Exodus? Leviticus, right? Exodus, we get the law of God. Leviticus, what do I do? I've broken the law of God. He's gonna kill me. He's going to justly punish me for my sin. And the wages of sin is death. So so what am I gonna do? I've broken the law of God. Leviticus, there's gonna be a sacrifice that's gonna die in your place for your sin. That sacrifice is gonna take on all the wrath of God that was meant for you because of your sin. That sacrifice will die in your place for your sins so that you can be forgiven, so that you can go free, so that you can live. That's Leviticus. A perfect, spotless lamb will come and die in your place because you broke God's law and you rightly and justly deserve his wrath. But because God loves you so much, he's going to come and save the lawbreaker from their own sin by providing a sacrifice that will die in your place for your sin, and that's, that's Leviticus. The Old Testament never assumes you can actually keep the law. In fact, Paul would say in Romans chapter three, the law was given to shut every mouth and to make you silent before God. Paul said in Romans, that was the purpose of the law. So when Jesus says do this, in, 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 in the original language, do this, like do this perfectly and keep on doing this. What should have happened to that lawyer? Ooh, his mouth should have been shut. I, I haven't done that. And I could never do that. No matter how hard I try, I could never do that, Jesus. So the next question should have been, then what must I do to be saved? I've broken the law of God. I'll never be able to keep it on my own. So what must I do to be saved? But that's not his, that's not his response. Verse 29, what does he say? What does he respond? He says, well, well, who's my neighbor? (laughs) Who's my neighbor? Uh, And and Jesus says, he was, Luke says rather, seeking to justify himself, he he says, who's my neighbor? So rather than humble himself to the Holy Spirit, Standard of God. Uh, that's not me. I haven't done that. I can't do that. He tries to justify himself. Well, geez, you know, who, who's my neighbor really? Like he, he tries to change the standard. I don't meet the standard. So I'll change the standard to meet my level of experience, right? I, I'm not going to humble myself and submit myself to the standard. No, I'll just change the standard. We see progressive Christians all throughout church history doing this all the time. I don't really like what that has to say. So we're just going to change that or just ignore that. Standing over the word of God as if they could judge the word and criticize the word. And that will always bring ruin and destruction into your life. I don't like that standard, I don't like that law, so I'm just gonna change it rather than submit to it. I'm gonna to try to justify myself instead of humbly submitting to God and confessing my sin and how I haven't measured up and how I've fallen short. I'll just, I'll just change the standard. So to justify himself, verse 29, this lawyer says, well, 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 who's my neighbor? Well, then in verse 30, Jesus starts telling a story. Jesus goes once upon a time, right? And when Jesus starts going once upon a time, you are in trouble, okay? This dude's in trouble, right? And anytime Jesus in the gospel starts going once upon a time, let me tell you a story, okay? You're in trouble because he's about to read your mail. You're about to find yourself in the story somewhere every time Jesus starts going once upon a time. You are in (laughs) trouble. trouble. You're going to see yourself in the story. Verse 30, Jesus says, well, there's this Jewish man and he's traveling down to Jericho. He's talking about the road that went from Jerusalem to Jericho, where literally you went down it like it was downhill. It was a 17 mile road. It was 17 miles long and it dropped 3000 feet in that stretch. You were literally going down and it was a very dangerous road. People were always robbed and beaten on this road by bandits and thieves. It's a dangerous road. And so Jesus says there's this Jewish man who's been beaten. He's been robbed. He's been left for dead. In verse 31, Jesus says there's this priest coming down the road and he sees this man. And instead of going to help, he, he like walks or he goes around him. Like he gets as far away from him as he can possibly get. He, he passes by him and, and the priest in the story gets, gets a bad rap. He, he just gets a bad rap with like our knee jerk reaction is to be very harsh with this religious priest. It's to be very harsh with him and say, uh, that's not what I would have done. It's kind of like when you watch the movie, Saving Private Ryan. How many of you seen that movie, Saving Private Ryan? Okay, almost all of us, a lot of us have seen it. Okay, then you, you might remember the scene in which there's there's uh, two soldiers, one's in the hallway and, and his friend is in this other room and he's in a he's in a battle, like he's in a fight with this Nazi soldier and this other guy's out in the hallway and he's too scared to go in and help his friend, right? You remember You know the scene I'm talking about? And if you're watching it, I don't know if you're like me, you're just like, bro, what are you doing? Like you're, you're just, your soul is like screaming, like bro, man up, get some courage, go in the room, Help your friend, he's about to die. And here's what almost all of us would say. Oh, here's what probably every one of us would say when we were watching that clip, when we were watching that, that's not what I would have done. That's not what I would have done. Oh, oh, really? Like, you know what you would have done in that moment, given the circumstances. No, none none of us know what we would have done. This priest gets a bad rap. He's on his way back from a two week stint at the temple. If this priest touches this man, he's ritualistically unclean, which means this, he's gonna have to go back to Jerusalem. He's gonna have to purchase a red heifer. He's gonna go through a a cleansing ceremony that's gonna last seven days. He's gonna have to stay outside at the Eastern gate. He's gonna be out of his priestly rotation for a couple of weeks. He's not gonna be able to do his job. This is not an easy predicament this man finds himself in. It's a tough situation for this priest. But regardless, here's what Jesus reveals to us through this story is that this man's religious devotion kept him from acting with mercy and compassion. Verse 32, it says a temple assistant, this is a Levite comes along. These are like deacons to the priest who might've been like the elders in that that day. And this Levite, this temple assistant walks by them too. These temple assistants, these Levites, they're like the JV priests. They're like the B team. Okay. But they're never going to be on the A team. They're never going to be varsity. Okay. And so this Levite, this temple assistant, most likely given the story, the readers would have understood that the Levi, the temple assistant would have seen because of the way the road worked going downhill that chances are he would have seen the priest walk around the man and pass him and probably is thinking to himself, well, I'm just gonna do the same thing. Bound by the same ritualistic expectations as the priest, Probably thinking, listen, the priest, like he's well to do, he makes good money. I don't even have the money to be able to help this guy. Like I, I don't make the same kind of coin that, that, that the priest makes and, 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 and he passed him by. So, so, so I'm going to pass him by too. If he didn't touch him, then I'm surely not going to touch him either. Verse 33, once again, Jesus provides the ultimate Jesus juke, right? And he says, then came a despised Samaritan. That's a naughty word to the Jews, okay? That's a naughty word. Then came, it's a despised Samaritan. In fact, in John chapter eight, the Pharisees accused Jesus of being a Samaritan. It was a racial slur. He said, aren't you you demon possessed and a Samaritan? Isn't that right? It was a cut down. It was a racial slur in their day. Those were fighting words. Samaritans were unclean. They were crossbreeds. They were Jews that had married Assyrians. And the Jews would, would treat Samaritans like they were a cult. In fact, we see in some Jewish writings where at the temple, in the synagogue, Jews would pray God, forgive me, have mercy on me, save me, rescue me. But not him. Don't forgive him. Don't show him mercy. Don't show that Samaritan any grace. There's actually examples in Jewish writings of prayers like that. Forgive me, but don't forgive him. Don't forgive that dirty crossbreed Samaritan. But Jesus makes it clear through this story that this Samaritan, not a Gentile, a Jewish crossbreed is still most likely bound by the same ritualistic religious expectations as the priest and the Levite, but Jesus makes it clear that this despised Samaritan is really the one who's loving God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving his neighbor as himself. As Jesus says, this man felt compassion. As Brandon has talked about a couple of times over the last month, he, he felt that brokenness in his bowels, like deep within him that moved him with compassion and Mercy. And so, verse 34: in compassion, this despised Samaritan stops. He gets down, he bandages his wounds. He has oil and wine to, 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 for, his, for these wounds to, to help them and to, uh, to, to help heal them and to bind up his wounds. He puts him on his own animal, he, he gets off his animal, he puts the, 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 the Jewish man who's been beaten and, and left for dead, he puts him on his animal and he walks beside the animal, he gives his time, he gives his energy to look after this man. He sacrifices of himself his own comfort, his own safety. By stopping on this road, he's putting himself in the same danger that this Jewish man has experienced. In verse 35, it says that this despised Samaritan gave his own money for this dude to stay at the inn. This is like leaving a credit card at a hotel for a hotel room for someone you you do not know. And in fact, you don't even probably like and you have no idea. Are they gonna dive into the mini bar, right? Are they gonna drink those six dollar waters and eat that $10 candy bar? Are they gonna order some movies? Like you, you have no idea what they're gonna do. But you leave a credit card saying, I'm paying for him, and if and if that doesn't cover it when I return, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cover it. It was like providing your credit card for a hotel room for someone you neither knew nor liked to stay until his wounds were settled, scholars would say, this is probably about a month. Could anywhere from a month to two months that this man would have been at this inn, that this despised Samaritan paid for him. So verse 35, he gives his own money. He's sacrificing himself. And in verse 36, Jesus says, "So, so who's the neighbor? And The lawyer can't even say the name, he can't even say the word. He just says the one who showed mercy. He can't even bring himself to say the word. It's a Samaritan. He just says, it's the one who showed mercy. So, four good questions answered by the Good Samaritan. Number one, first question is this that the Good Samaritan answers, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? The suggestion that the lawyer is making here reveals that he believes that some people are not his neighbors. There's neighbors and there's non-neighbors. Here's what some scholars have said about this question that the lawyer asked. This question, here's what one scholar said, this question, who is my neighbor? It's really an attempt to limit who one's neighbor might be. In ancient culture as today, such limits might've run along ethnic lines, racial lines. There was a category of non-neighbor and the lawyer is seeking Jesus's endorsement of that concept. In contemporary terms, any of the various forms of racism may underlie the scribe's question. There are neighbors, there are my folk, And then there are the rest, them. The neighbors are my folk, People who look like me and sound like me. The non-neighbors are them. Another scholar said this about this question the lawyer asked for most Jews a neighbor was not, or, or was another Jew. It was not a Samaritan and it was not a Gentile. The Pharisees and the Essenes, Essenes is another sect within Judaism, like another denomination. They didn't even include all the Jews. This teaching stands in sharp contrast with that of Jesus's parable here. The Essenes taught that one was to love all the children of light who are part of the community, but to hate the children of darkness who stand outside of the community. Just how far they had strained from the word of God and the law of God with their own teachings and their own traditions. The Samaritan could have done some of that same math. Is he my race? No. Maybe he didn't travel with a group like he should have down this dangerous road, he, some bad choices, man. He made bad choices, he, he, he deserved what he got, he, he knew the consequences of going down this road, maybe the time of day that he went down, maybe the, 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 uh, not traveling with, with a group. I didn't do anything wrong. The Samaritan could have done that math. I didn't do anything wrong. Who knows what this guy has done, but I haven't done anything wrong. So why would I help? The lawyer responds rightly, saying the neighbor was the one who showed mercy. Mercy doesn't do the math Grace doesn't do the math. Jesus tells a parable of a shepherd, a good shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep for the one sheep that's lost and has gone astray. That's not good math. Jesus told another parable about a one-hour worker making the same amount of money as a 12-hour worker. That's not good math. And if you care, that would upset you, right? If you were doing the math, that would probably upset you if you're the 12-hour worker. Jesus talks about a woman, a widow who gave two pennies, and how those were worth a great sum. That is not good math. We talked about progressive Christians a little bit ago. Well, conservative minded Christians over the years have assumed that they are off the hook from helping their neighbor because maybe they debate whether or not systemic oppression really exists or or maybe the person made bad choices or, or maybe that person should just go and get a job. My wife and I celebrated nineteen years of marriage this past week, and we've been together about twenty one uh, We met in seventh grade, and so um, I've known her family for a long time. what is that like thirty you know years or so and um I was talking with her her dad, my father in law this week, and we were talking about this passage, and he he said, "You know." A few years ago, if I saw the news or if I heard about a story, if I was thinking about the poor, or the homeless, or the convict, if I saw the news and I saw a story about maybe someone being you know, arrested or arrested again, he said, I, I would have looked at them and, and, and thought and assumed they just need to make better choices or they need to go get a job. He said, but then he started serving with with Hope City. Hope City is our campus, it's our church that, that meets out at the Lubbock County Detention Center and across the street at the CRTC as well. He said he started serving out there and getting to know these men and hearing their stories and praying for them and sharing with them and doing Bible study with them. And then when they would get out, he would start to try to help them make that transition into life outside of jail to provide for themselves and their families and have a place to to, to, to live and, and, and food to eat so that they wouldn't have to go back. So they wouldn't have to go back to the same means by which they had made money in the first place that, that got them thrown into jail the first time, right? And so he, he said, as, as he got to know these guys and, and he understood their stories and, and, and he saw what they had been faced with and what they had grown up in in their families and he said he began to realize, I'll never forget one day we were, driving down 130th back to my house. And he said something that kind of shocked me because I'd never heard him say anything like this before. He said, you know what? I realized they they don't have any good choices. I, I thought probably before they just need to make better choices and they just need to go get a job and that'll kind of, that'll fix everything about their condition. And he said, you know what I learned is they really don't have any good choices, they don't have the same choices, they don't have the same options that that you and I have. And in reality, he he would say they they don't have any good choices. He never would have said that probably two or three years ago. As we were talking, we we were kind of, I I think, realizing and understanding like your distance from a situation causes you to do the math in a way that assumes a lot of things. But when when you get close to someone and when you get, you start to hear their story and, and know where they've come from and what they faced in this life, that, that, that closeness, that proximity, it changes things. It, 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 it changes your mind about a lot. It changes the math, it changes the equation and it for sure changes your own hearts. When we were talking this week, he said, you know, Clayton, when I'm, when I'm in worship now, like at our church when I'm in our, our services and I'm, I'm wor- he said, it's, it's drastically changed even the way I worship. He said, I worship in tears, broken over the situations that a lot of these men face. A Couple of weeks ago, he was going to have surgery because some blood had built up on the back of his neck, the back of his head, and it was causing severe, severe headaches. And it, it scared us. We didn't know what it was. And he went in and there, there, was, some, there was some blood fluid build up on the back of his head. And so they went in through his skull, like on, on either side. They Basically, they drilled holes down in it. I don't understand all of it. I might not even be saying it all right, but they put some tubes in there and it relieves the pressure and it relieves the liquid. and And, and before he was going into surgery, the doctors and nurses are in their room and they're trying to tell them what's going to happen and all this stuff. And he's on the phone trying to help one of these men who had just gotten out from Lubbock County Detention Center, get situated with a job and housing and food. And he's trying to work out all the details with, with pastor Fred. Before he's going into surgery, he's texting, he's texting Fred, he's texting this man and trying to make sure this guy has got everything that he can possibly have to, to just make a, 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 the best choice he could possibly make. And it's not even a good one, but just to make a, the best choice he can possibly make. You see, my, my father-in-law went from kind of doing the math from a distance to getting involved and getting close, not only realizing the equation completely changed in a way he had no idea or no concept of from a distance, but that proximity changed the equation. It changed the way he did the math, but but more than that, it changed his heart. Mercy, grace doesn't do the math, but if you're gonna do the math, don't be ignorant. Get involved and discover the real equation. And what you'll find is proximity always changes the equation. Proximity always changes your hearts. So this parable answers the question, who's my neighbor? Your neighbor's the one in need. Regardless of their choices, regardless of what they deserve or don't deserve, your neighbor is just the one in need. It's the poor, it's the homeless, it's the unborn, it's the orphan, it's the mother, that, that, that mother, that pregnant mother that has no idea what she's going to do and is scared to death of what's in front of her. It's the sex trafficked, it's the oppressed, it's the immigrants. That's your neighbor. Those are the neighbors that we are called to have compassion and mercy for without doing the math and to move and to respond and to serve. It's informed who we've partnered here with locally in our city. We've partnered with ministries and organizations that are serving the poor and the homeless and the unborn and that pregnant mother and the immigrant. We give to and support and have sought to come alongside Ministries that do all of these different things. And I'll just show you my cards for our serve day out at the children's home in Lubbock next Saturday. That's not just kind of a, a, a one event and then we're, we're done. It's actually the launch of a new vision and a new ministry where we're going to begin to promote and cast vision for serving and taking in the orphan and the foster child. Many families in our church have already done so and set a great example for the rest of us. But we're going to begin to cast vision for not just going out and serving at a children's home, but getting close. Part of the reason we're going out there is to get, is to get close, is to, get, is to shrink that distance and get, get in proximity. Because as you do, your heart always changes. So this is gonna be the launch of a new ministry, a new vision that we are going to give ourselves to. One scholar said about this, parable about this lawyer. He said this, this religious expert in the law now must think whether the priest and the Levite and therefore himself who have scrupulously retained the moral purity required by the law had actually really kept the law as he had assumed. And the same question applies to you and I have you, have we, the neighbor is the one who shows mercy the second question this parable answers is what is love? What is love? We learn in this parable, it's not an emotion. It's not a means of self-actualization. Our culture, our world will tell us, well, love is love. You can love whoever, whoever you want to. That is not what the Bible says about love. Love is not some sort of feeling or emotion whereby you self-realize and self-actualize. That's not love according to the Bible. The, the the, the parable, the story starts out with loving God and loving your neighbor with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So you might be thinking, well, well where's the emotion? Where's the feeling? Where's the love songs, right? Where, where's the love? And it's right there. It's the Bible's definition of love, which is the definition that really matters. This Samaritan in the, their day was an ethnic slur. But today, the good Samaritan is the definition of a compliment. It's the definition of love. Love is sacrifice. Love is mercy. Love is compassion. Love is giving up yourself for the needs of another. Romans 5, 8 says, God proved his own love. He demonstrated his love for us in this, and that while we were yet sinners, while we were his enemies, he sent Christ to die for us. He gave up his own life for your sake and for my sake. That's, that's love, it's sacrifice, it's compassion, it's mercy. That's why when the scripture says, husbands love your wives like Christ loved the church, Paul goes on to clarify what he means, and he says, by giving yourself up for her. That's love, it's giving yourself, it's not a means of self-realization or self-actualization, no. The word of God says love is giving yourself up for another. Marriage is giving up your own self, your own comfort, your own needs, your own thoughts, desires, wants, and dreams. And you give, you're giving those things up for the benefit of your spouse. That's real love. Number three, the third question that the good Samaritan answers is what a Christian looks like. What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? Jesus says to this lawyer, go and do likewise. This isn't just a description of the people of God. This is prophetic for what Jesus's people will look like, who they will be and what they will do. In James chapter one, the brother of Jesus says this, pure and genuine religion is this, it's to look after widows and orphans in their distress. Jesus uses the priest and the Levite in this story for a reason, it's on purpose. It's to show that oftentimes the most religious miss it. They miss the heart of God. that a Christian, a follower of Jesus is one who loves God and loves their neighbor. It's not an either or, it's a both and. You've heard us say often here, if you've been here very long, we are a both and people. We're gonna love the Lord our God with all of our soul, all of our heart, our emotions. We're gonna love the Lord our God with all of our strength. That's our desire, our will, our obedience, our passion, our zeal. We're going to love the Lord, the God with all of our mind. That's that's knowledge of him and his word. We're going to love our neighbor as ourself. We're going to be a people who are compassionate and merciful. We're, we're, we're a people of both. And we're theologians, but we're not just theologians. We're humanitarians, but, but we're not just humanitarians and not in the way that the world views it. We're going to be filled with the spirit and led by the spirit, but we're not just going to be a, pe- a people about experience. No, spiritual growth and maturity following Jesus will mean that we're growing in all of these things. In our emotion, in our spirit, in the word, in compassion, in mercy. This is what it looks like to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus. And then fourth, finally, the good Samaritan answers how a person is saved. Answers how a person is saved. When, When faced with the law, this lawyer tries to justify himself. And so Jesus gives him more law. He thinks he's a good person he wants to do better and try harder to inherit eternal life. And so Jesus gives him even more law. This guy doesn't want to admit that he isn't righteous. He doesn't want to admit that he's broken the law of God and then he needs to be saved. And so when Jesus says do this, in other words, like keep on doing this, the response of the lawyer should have been, um, I, wait a second, I don't always love God the way that I should. I don't always love my neighbor as I should. And even if I, did love God, and if I did love my neighbor most, how do I know I've done that enough? You could never know. No, the scripture says we are dead in our sin. We are spiritually dead, dead in our sin, separated from God, and we cannot save ourselves. We cannot do better and try harder our way into the kingdom of God, into heaven. That's not the way it works. That's why Jesus gives the man this law to show him, you've fallen short of the standard and you will never meet the standard. We're dead in our sin. We need someone to help us. We need someone to save us. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come for those who think they're righteous. I came for those who know they are sinners. I came for the sick who know they need a doctor to heal them. And so because we're sick, Because we're sinners, because we're dead in our sin, our enemy, Jesus. And you're like, wait a second, Jesus isn't my enemy. No, no, he was at some point. The scripture says we're enemies of God in our sin. You weren't always a Christian. You weren't born a Christian. You weren't always a Christian. If you're a Christian, you became a Christian at some point by faith in Jesus. but we're dead in our sin and our enemy, Jesus, who was also despised and rejected, the scripture says, just like the despised Samaritan, the scripture says that Jesus was despised and rejected and he, he came and helped us. He, he rescued us. He stopped. He came down. His garments were torn. He took the wine of his blood and poured it out for us. He gave us the oil of the Holy Spirit through his death and resurrection on the cross, he paid the fine for your sin. He paid the debt that you owe to God. And so who is ultimately the good Samaritan? Who's the the better, the greater good Samaritan? It's Jesus, the one who was despised and rejected, who came down from heaven, whose garments were torn, his blood was shed. so that you might be healed, so that you might be saved. Imagine this guy wakes up at the inn, right? He was left for dead. He wakes up at the inn, and if it was you, what would you do? You'd ask the innkeeper, what happened, (laughs) right? What what happened? The last thing I remember was being beaten and robbed on the road. What, how, how did I get here? What, what, what happened? You, you can imagine the, the guy asking the innkeeper these questions. Like, how did I get here? Did I, did I, did I come to and like just scrape and, and crawl and make it here like on my own? And, and, and the innkeeper said, no, 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 no. You didn't, you didn't get here on your own. You didn't do it. You were carried and healed. Well, well then who did it? He did. Well, I... I can't pay for all this. I could never pay you back. You don't have to, you're paid in full. Well, where is he? He left, but he said he's coming back. Jesus has been the perfect neighbor for you. And so in the words of my buddy, Mr. Rogers, won't you please be his neighbor? Would you pray with me? Just right your head, heads bowed, eyes closed. It's kind of a moment between you and God. And I just wanna ask you this question, the same, the same question that the lawyer asked, but, but just a little bit different. Have you inherited eternal life? It's something you receive by faith. It's not something you can do or earn or work for or try harder for. It's something you receive by faith. Have you received eternal life by placing your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin? And then your, your sin was totally wiped away, it was totally paid for, and now you're right with God and you can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. Have you received eternal life? Is that you? If that's not you, today is your day. Now is the time to humble yourself and give yourself to Jesus that you might be saved and rescued from the penalty of your sin so that you might spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. Have you received eternal life? If you haven't, today's your day. Give your life to Jesus. And if that's you, jump on our app, fill our connect form, and let us know that you're giving your life to Jesus today. The lawyer answered Jesus the one who showed mercy is the neighbor and so let me just ask you again just in your in just this moment between you and God who who's the the neighbor in your life that needs mercy that needs compassion who, who's the, the the neighbor in your life that you haven't been showing mercy and compassion to Maybe the spirit is prompting you this morning to go and be a neighbor. God, I pray in these moments we have together, God, you would move and work in our hearts. Holy Spirit, reveal to us that, that neighbor that, that's in need, that needs, our, that needs help. God, God, show us maybe that person we, we, we don't wanna be a neighbor to because we, we, we've done the math and we don't want to have mercy. We don't want to show compassion because of the math. We just can't get past the math. Holy Spirit, would you just come and move in our hearts and, and get us over and through the, the math because God, you didn't do the math when it came to us. You didn't do the math. That's grace. That's mercy. You just sent your son Jesus to die for us in our place for our sin while we were still your enemies. And so God, I pray that you would turn us into a people, that we would be a church that are good neighbors, that our city would look at us and say, they are great neighbors. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand?